And so we introduced Julian of Norwich, because she's always good. Um, she's, you know, she says that wrath and love be two contraries. God can't be wrathful and he can't love. She says that, you know, our, essentially she repeats Moses 139. This is their work and their glory. So, you know, everybody's starting to breathe a little easier. <laughs> and then um, one young man at the back puts up his hand and he asks, what about judgment? And so we asked him, how do you feel when you hear that word judgment? He said, I, I am afraid. I feel fear. And so we responded by saying that if you feel fear, that is not God speaking. God never coerces. He never forces. He would never use fear to try and get you to behave well or to get up earlier in the morning, whatever it is. And, and then we thought of Elder Uchtdorf and the way Elder Uchtdorf redefined judgment to be a place of healing, to be a place where all things are made right, to be a place where you can feel for the first time since you left their presence, absolute unmitigated love. Carol and Fiona Givens is this episode of the Cultural Hall. They've been here before. We got all their story in previous episodes. Find it in the show notes. This time we're talking about their new book. Now, if you are not a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall and you are listening to this and it is still the year 2020, there is still an opportunity for you to get in at that $3 tier. If you're listening in 2021, you'll be like, there was a $3 tier once upon a time? Yeah, there was, but it closed at the end of 2020. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall, or you can go to theculturalhall.com and find the Patreon link. Terrell and Fiona Givens have a brand new book. It's called All Things New, and we talk about all the different uh, conceptions is not the word I'm looking for, uh, like uh, rethinkings, rethunks, the, the redos. We talk about how we can reimagine, that's the word I was looking for, reimagine different things like sin and salvation, right? They call it rethinking, I call it reimagining, let's all call it this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and, you know, I'm excited about this one. I say that about all of them, but I have to tell you I'm especially excited about this. I almost said especially, Tara, or uh, Fiona, and I realized that you would have been like, not a word, Richie. Uh, we're visiting with Terrell and Fiona Givens. Now, if you want to know who those folks are, uh, shame on you that you don't already know who those folks are, uh, but you can go back and listen to previous episodes where we did an entire episode with each of them. That's episodes number 148 and 149. Links to those are available in the show notes. But I'm excited because of a couple reasons. One, they've got a brand new book. It's called All Things New. And I love this for 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 the following reasons. One, I saw a billboard before I ever got a, a an email from Terrell that said, hey, they've got a new book coming out. And that morning, the morning that I received that email, I said, Oh, I need to reach out to the Givens and be able to speak to them. So one, that I'm talking to people that are featured on a billboard. Two, that then that same day I got an email uh, saying, hey, Richie, we'd love to be able to chat about this new book with you. And then three, I'm excited that we're actually making it happen. How this is going to work is sort of the subtitle of All Things New is it's rethinking sin, salvation, and everything in between. So with these three blocks of the cultural hall, uh, Fiona and I are going to talk about rethinking sin. Then we're going to kick Fiona square out of the room and make Terrell be here. We're going to talk about rethinking salvation. And then we're going to bring everybody back together and we're going to talk about everything in between. Thanks for being here, Fiona. Oh, absolutely, Richie. It's wonderful to be with you again. Thank you. Now, so we're talking about uh, rethinking sin. As much as I love to even think about sin, the idea of rethinking sin, I, I'm not sure that I understand what we're talking about. You know, through the years, Terrell and I have done quite a number of firesides, I think almost 300, both home and abroad. And um, we, we are finding that the people we are encountering are frightened. Uh, they're frightened of a wrath, wrathful, vengeful God, and they're frightened that their sins have caused his wrathfulness and vengefulness. I, I would suggest that it actually happened the other way around. Somebody invented God's wrath, Augustine, but um, Milton um, propounded it. 
And uh, his work was uh, widely disseminated in the United States, so sort of a shorter, simpler, uh, without the mythology. And, um, you know, the God he portrays is pretty harrowing. I think, actually, he really had a soft spot for Satan. Satan is a really noble God, on the other hand, is not. Um, in fact, in, in the third book of Paradise Lost, um, he writes, the son, much more to pity inclined, he to appease thy wrath and end the strife of mercy and justice, offered himself to die, die for man's offense. So essentially, sin comes from the very beginning. We offended God by wanting to be like him. And um, that proof incontrovertible is the fact that Eve, particularly at of that fruit, the interdicted fruit, and, um, and thereby caused sin and fall. Well, we, we have a very, as, as Latter-day Saints, as the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, we actually have a very, very different beginning to this whole thing, um, sin and fall. We actually don't believe, or our scriptures attest, that Eve did not sin. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, what she did was both heroic and um, stunning. She opened the door for the, for the absolute um, necessity of um, our imbibing mortal life. So, so I, I think what sets us apart and what sets the whole discussion of sin into an entirely different category is that it was absolutely necessary for us to come to earth to experience mortality in order for us to become like, uh, like God. So um, Joseph in the King Follett discourse says, God found himself in the midst of spirits and glory, and he saw proper to institute laws whereby those who are less in intelligence, spirits or glory, could advance like himself and be exalted with him. Hmm. So we have a very different end uh, that, that we, not just we as members of the church, but in fact, all humankind, because we are all children, of our heavenly father will eventually be exalted. So it's it's sort of the Germans call it Schiefgegangen. We went really sideways with um, well, probably beginning with Tertullian. He was Roman, he was educated in law, and so he starts to bring this penal um, note into it, um, into the whole thing, which is exacerbated by Augustine and then Anselm. So uh, I, I don't think that um, sin and salvation, neither does terror, um, were, the, were the beginning or the impetus or actually has anything to do with our life on earth. Um, so, so let me ask you this then. If, if you don't feel like it has anything to do with the life on the earth, certainly from like the scope of, of the doctrine of, of, of what we believe, I'll go there with you. I'll I'll say, yeah, you bet. But that certainly is not how, and as you expressed at the very beginning, that's not how many of us feel. We fear that we made a choice that brought down, you know, we we aren't successful because we made this choice, and now God is sort of punishing us because of this. Whether it be individual or just as humankind, you know, we, we still very much deal in the realm of I'm bad, being punished, and and don't either don't um, exhibit that we believe this or we just don't practice that we believe this other sort of this this faith about about what sin is or or about being able to be like God. So how do we get from where we are, this sort of fearful people, to where we we could be, which is sort of in commune with God and knowing that that he loves us and he's not waiting to punish us and all of those things? Right. No, that's absolutely a brilliant question. I, I think we need to be very difficult, diff, uh, sorry, um, discerning with the biblical text, actually any um, text that is uh, claimed to be scripture. Brigham Young uh, once asked a man, actually, I have the quote somewhere. It's really quite delightful because it's so very Brigham Young. <laughs> um, let's see. He met a minister and he said, I asked him if he believed the Bible. And he replied, yes, every word of it. You do not believe it all to be the word of God? The minister asked Brigham. Most assuredly, I do. No, actually, he's still talking to the minister. Well, said I, you can beat me at believing that certain. As I read the Bible, it contains the word of the Father, the Son, angels, good and bad, Lucifer, the devil, of wicked men and good men. Some are lying and some are telling the truth. And if you believe it all to be the word of God, then you go beyond me. So I, th I think I think what would be really helpful is to go back to the very beginning, the genesis of our narrative, because it's very much like the genesis of Christianity in the first four centuries. 
that um, we that one that these the scriptural texts are errant, that there are things in there that are going to describe God as He is, which is all loving, and um, as Macrina, the uh, the sister of Gregory of Nyssa said, uh, God cannot be both wrathful and loving. Uh, the two qualities are too disparate. You can either be one or the other. And if you're both, you're schizophrenic. So then we are in real trouble yeah. as far as the God we worship. So um, that there is a lot of suffering in the world, absolutely. People will generally say, well, there's suffering because of sin. It's very interesting that in the last 20 years, I think, uh, maybe longer, there is an awful lot of material literature being produced about trauma. And I think this is really important, especially for us as Latter-day Saints, because it grounds our beliefs, which have actually been, uh, we've been sort of swamped by evangelical beliefs, unfortunately, pretty much from the very beginning, from Brigham Young with blood atonement, that you know Christ could atone for certain people's sins, but the rest of you who did really bad ones needed to atone for your own. So then that completely negated the, the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. But I, I, I think even more significantly, as we move into the discussions of trauma, I think it's interesting that women are sort of leading the way, yeah. as they are in leading a, a sort of a, a clarion call for a different perception of atonement. And, and I, I, I think they're absolutely right. So with trauma, I think we can say and, and, and I think our own scriptures attest that this is what has been now labeled as sin. So we have God saying something really unfair. You know, the children will be cursed until the third and fourth generations. It's like, well, what have they done to you? Yeah. But if we if we uh, if we exchange sin for trauma, then we have generational trauma. And then there is a lot about generational trauma that is being seen. And yes, that does play out into the third and fourth generations. I think also it's really important to understand Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Um, after Eve and Adam eat of the fruit, God says they have become as one of us. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so we have become more like God rather than less like God. So is this earth then a place for us to sin? We say not. It is a place for us to prepare to meet God, but suffering is entailed. The the beautiful philosopher, theologian, really, and preacher, uh, Congregationalist Minister Edward Beecher, said that you know when he was looking at the war in heaven, he he said that it had nothing to do with clashing shields and armor and riding dragons. It was written so boys would read that. <laughs> but uh, he he said that Satan and the host that followed him. He describes it thus, from pleasure, of course, there was no temptation to revolt, but from a discipline of suffering, such as would make them co-creators with God, we could they could be tempted to revolt. I think he has really hit it. It is suffering, it is trauma. So um, when we look at trauma, God actually um, discusses it in um, Moses 6. Well, first of all, he says they've become as one of us, knowing good and evil. Mm -hmm. So we take this from the Hebraic sense, experiencing good and evil. Mm -hmm. In her Ode to Joy, Moses 5.11, Eve repeats the words verbatim. Had we not eaten of the fruit, we never should have had children. It was absolutely imperative for them to eat of that fruit in order to access mortality. And then she says the same thing. We never should have known good and evil. It's extraordinary. And then in um, Moses chapter 6, God redirects our thoughts about evil and sin um, by labeling it bitter. So we learn, we experience the bitter in order to prize the good. So now we've taken that horrible sting out of sin, the shame out of it. Um, and once we recognize that we are, we are either born carrying um, trauma or we will all experience trauma in our lives to a greater or lesser degree. That makes so much sense. It, it, um, it, it is much closer to our understanding of an absolutely loving God. Romans 8, the last two verses, there is nothing, nothing that can um, impede God's love to us. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are, or what we are. 
God loves us absolutely and always has. And the um, work and glory of the Godhead is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of all mankind. And if they don't, then they have failed. And that's really rather unfortunate. And I don't think God is a failure. No. But I think I think we would be less frightened if we saw us as traumatized rather than sinful, because it has a very different connotation. It's very difficult to love someone if you think they are sinful. If, however, you feel that person is wounded or is suffering from trauma, you will immediately go towards that person. And, um, and I, that, I think that is our work in this life. I think the baptismal covenants really um, emphasize that, the fact that we have been, we covenant to uh, carry each other's burdens, mourn with those who mourn. Comfort those um, that comfort stand, those in need of stand in need of comfort. Absolutely. So you mentioned at the very beginning of this that, you know, this book is sort of borne out, that, at least in part, of your opportunity um, with Terrell to go and speak, whether it be Firesides or about your books or on podcasts, um, you know, shows, all those things. And you have people that will contact you afterwards. And they, these are people who for all intents and purposes, using your word in this conversation, are traumatized, who feel helpless, who feel, you know, not worthy of God's love. How has this rethinking of sin allowed you to help and be able to comfort those that would come to you just desperately in need of comfort? Well, I think for us, the primary thing is to establish um, the nature of God that God chose to love us and in so doing made himself vulnerable. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this his strength. This is his power because we are drawn to people who are vulnerable and God is God and made himself vulnerable by loving us. I think that's key. I think if we understand that God loves us absolutely, there is nothing that we can do. And this is all attested to in the first four centuries by some extraordinary people, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, that God loves us with an absolute love. In fact, um, and I think also this is a problem too, is, is, is focusing too much attention on the crucifixion because that's where, you know, sins are purged. But the early Christians never really thought of the crucifixion. Crucifixion meant death and death meant eternal life. So all of their um, focus was on the resurrection. So it's a much more positive uh, theology and it brings us into a much healthier relationship with God. Uh, God would do nothing to us or, or, or cause anything that would make us feel ashamed or unworthy of his love. He loved us first mm -hmm. before anything he loved us first, all of us. And that love is absolute. It can't waver. And I think if we understand, if we really understand that we are loved absolutely, each one of us individually and collectively are, are loved absolutely by God, then it already puts us in a safe place. And then we can look at sin and question it, as I think we should. You know, so, so for me with trauma, I, um, I, I generally use the idea of somebody who has schizophrenia. And this we see in, in Moses 6. So the child is born, he's perfectly healthy as far as anybody can see, mm -hmm. but the schizophrenia is with him. He has it. And um, God says, you know, he's conceived in sin, which is sounding terribly Catholic. It's not God language. So we should know immediately there's something wrong with it. <laughs> not that it's Catholic, but the fact that we are conceived in sin, right. uh, which is really Augustine. And then from then on. And then he says, um, sin conceiveth in, this in, in, in his heart and it grows up with him or her. Well, that's exactly what happens to a person with schizophrenia. They grow up. No, nobody is aware of the schizophrenia until um, he's 18 or 19, when he starts hearing the competing voices in his head. That is trauma. And I think when people understand that, that most of it is trauma and brain disease, um, that, we, that we are actually born um, into this earth life. Paul would call it seeing through a glass darkly. But the fact of the matter is we, we are not acting as, as completely whole and entire people. The promise is that we will become whole and entire. Jesus says that you shall become whole and entire, just like your father in heaven. Mm -hmm. But we're not born that way. and We don't live that way. But the promise is that we will end up that way. So I'm going to ask you to to remove the scholarly approach, to remove the academic oh, approach. No, no, no. I appreciate it because I it, it is it is very, very necessary that we understand where that's coming from. 
But before we let Terrell scoot you out of your seat and we talk to him about rethinking salvation, the last question that I would have for you about this is how is thinking of sin in this way, this rethinking that you're talking about, how has it impacted you personally or or has it? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, it has impacted me. I feel um, not only more confident in my own abilities to keep those covenants that I have made, but I look at people very differently. When, when people are unkind or angry, um, I don't react anymore. Um, I recognize that they are wounded. And as soon as, if we would all look at each other as wounded, that would suddenly um, change our universe Mm -hmm. in regards to other people and in regards to ourselves. And then we would think more about Zion and less like Armageddon. And I think Zion is what we are going to end up with. But I don't think we can. I don't think we can get out of the fear of Armageddon unless we understand that sin is not purgative. It is woundedness and that we are all wounded. And that God is aware of that, and He's working with us. Does that help? Yes. Did I answer your yes. question? Yes, I absolutely, okay. I absolutely love it. I am going to ask you to get out of that chair. We're going to come into the second block, and we're going to talk about rethinking salvation. We're going to let Terrell take over as we talk about all things new with Fiona and Terrell Givens in the second block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. A computer can be the best holiday gift imaginable. It can bring such joy and fluffiness. Buying any other brand of computer than a PC Laptops computer can be painful. Can you imagine calling Chumbawamba and being placed on hold for forever? Finally, when someone in Chumbawamba answers, only to be told your on-site extended warranty is the delivery guy picking up your computer and then having to wait eight weeks for them to tell you that your software problem isn't covered by the warranty? You end up paying a huge bill, and on top of it, you get your computer back and all your data is erased. That's brain damage. Avoid the pain and feel the love this holiday season. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12-month special financing on any PC laptop's desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Call us at 1-877-596-7283 for details or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com, where we love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, uh, if you like this conversation, you enjoy the things that we're talking about, you're excited for the second and the third block, uh, you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall uh, by going to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall, and that gets you access to the video. Uh, you get to see the many, many books that the Givens family hel- uh, holds on their bookshelves behind them. In the Zoom call, you get to see their beautiful faces, and you have to deal with mine, but hopefully we can make that so you don't have to deal with that. It's simple and easy. You just go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. All right, Terrell, you saw how your wife did it. So let's talk about rethinking salvation. What do, what do we need to rethink this about this? Salvation sounds pretty good to me. Well, let me start off by talking about the first time that I started rethinking salvation in my own life. I was 16 years old and not active in the church, uh, just kind of beginning a kind of dawning religious consciousness, living in an evangelical community and being frequently accosted by zealous missionaries of another faith tradition who would always begin the conversation by saying, have you been saved? Have you been saved? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember thinking as a, as a 16 year old kid listening to that question uh, and just feeling that that question doesn't have any purchase with me. I'm Hmm. not interested in what you're selling Hmm. because I don't feel a need to be rescued from hell. I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not experiencing this state of depravity or, or having been convicted. Maybe some people do, but, but it just didn't resonate. 
And it wasn't until really becoming immersed in the theology of the restoration that I came to understand why that concept of salvation, though we use the language in our tradition, the concept is absolutely incompatible with the understanding that Joseph Smith conveyed of a, a completely different plot with a completely different beginning. As Fiona said, if we begin with the King Follett discourse that pictures us as primordial beings in the presence of God, and he declares that he wants to bring us to where he is. Now think about the difference between rooting your self-conception as a human being in a condition of disadvantage and deficit, we're fallen and sinful, versus Joseph Smith's vision where we begin in a community with God, invited to be his peers rather than his subjects. It's completely different. It's completely different. We begin with this, this absolutely marvelous kind of prospect of endless possibilities of advance, of growth, of development, of embrace by eternal parents. And given that premise, then we have to radically reconceptualize what it is that happens in the Garden of Eden. And Fiona touched on this briefly. But if we understand what Eve did as a, as a step in the right direction to open us, to this educative immersion in a mortal sphere, then sin becomes the collateral damage. It doesn't become the defining characteristic of our new condition. Our new condition is one of mortality, of being subject to, to hurts and to, as Fiona said, to, to woundedness, to all kinds of damage that we experience emotionally, physically, socially, and sin is just one variety of a misstep. I like to go back to the Greek hamartia for sin just means a misfire or a misstep that is absolutely inevitable mm -hmm. given our mortal condition and the mortal constraints under which we operate. But salvation then becomes a completely different enterprise. We're not trying to recuperate a condition of blamelessness. We are trying to accomplish the original intention of the whole project, which is to enter into a community of the blessed, including the heavenly family. So where do we mess it up? It seems like we, you know, at, at, whether we go into ancient times or in the time of the restoration with Joseph Smith, like we had this, you talk about the King Follett and, and how he's able to say, yeah, guys, this, here this is. And I'm sure that people at the time were like, yes, okay, a different way. This is, you know, feels less heavy or you know, this glorious idea, and then we mess it up. Why, why how, how do we uh, eschew it from where we are today? Because although we know it to be here, what you're saying makes sense. I have not only made sense of it in my mind, but I've heard it before. I can go and study the words, the sermons, the, those things. But I don't know that just like the rethinking sin, I don't know that this idea of salvation I don't think we believe it. I don't think we know it. I don't think in, in, no. in even in some cases that we even recognize that there's a difference. No, we don't. And I think that is because we have vastly overestimated the restoration as an event. I'm so grateful that President Nelson has emphasized, no, it's a process. And we are still very much in the midst of the process of restoration. And I think that as human beings generally, we vastly underestimate the almost insuperable obstacles presented to us by the vocabulary that we inherit. If I could just read a, a quick quote from Robert McFarlane, he wrote, language does not register experience, it produces it. Joseph Smith and all of the 19th century saints were born into a Protestant world. They were immersed, they were raised, they, they, they suckled at the breast of a Protestant vocabulary, Protestant language, Protestant vocabulary that, that Joseph Smith, read section 137 of the Doctrine and Covenants, marvelous wording where Joseph says, we're still enmeshed in chains and bonds. It, it, the creeds of the fathers are still oppressing. I think he felt the frustration that we still hadn't distanced ourselves adequately from what scripture called the false traditions of the fathers. And just by using the, the word salvation, uh, I find that objectionable. Um, and let, let me give you a, a, a couple of linguistic and etymological bases for further repudiation of the vocabulary that we have inherited. 
right? Old Testament prophecies are replete with the language of healing, right? Mm -hmm. Christ will come with healing in his wings. The announcement where Christ proclaims his messiahship in Luke chapter four, he quotes from Isaiah 61, right? About, about a servant who will come into the world and heal the brokenhearted. This is all consistent with 1 Nephi 13, verse 32, 33, where the angel tells Nephi that the world is in a condition of awful woundedness. Think about the beautiful symmetry here. Mm -hmm. We've got a condition that has been prophesied that we are wounded, we're in need of healing, Christ comes into the world, and the Greek word that is used to refer to his mission more than any other is sozo, S-O-D-Z-O in transliteration, sozo. Christ will sozo. Many, many of the times when Christ heals somebody in the New Testament, the word that is used is sozo. He sozos the blind. He sozos the lamb. He sozos the, the dead, brings them back to life. But many times, sozo is translated instead as save. Hmm. At times where it doesn't even make sense. If we would think, and I'm not saying that there isn't a sense in which Christ saves and redeems us. He does principally from death. But if we would think of him primarily as the healer of our sins, rather than our savior from sin, I think we'd have a much more accurate portrait of how he understood and tried to convey his principal role. You find this even in the Book of Mormon, where in 3 Nephi, he appears before the multitude and he says, repent that I may heal you mm -hmm. of your sins. It's, I think it's a, it's a beautiful substitution of a healthy, encouraging concept for kind of depressing, logically and philosophically debatable concept. And so that's why we believe that the concept of salvation, if we associate it with this healing and with an eventual state of union with the human family, rather than liberation from guilt and sin, I think we we, we come much closer to the, the truth of what the restoration was aiming at. A question that comes to my mind, um, both as I was talking to Fiona and as I'm hearing you speak as well, this uh, line of thinking, this way of thinking, this rethinking, both sin and salvation, um, seems to run counter to not necessarily Christianity in its purest form, but certainly that which is taught as Christianity. As you've have op had opportunities to interact with other faiths, or even those within our faith, have you received any sort of resistance to this? No, and I think the reason for that is that um, you know we have we've played defense for a long while as a church. Mm -hmm. We've we've had to counter charges that we are heretical or unorthodox, and yet if you actually look at the record of what has transpired in the last fifty years, time and time again, the Christian community is converging on restoration principles. Mm -hmm. and, and I can name verse and chapter of where this is happening. You can see it in the literature. You can see it in the pronouncements of many public figures in, in the Christian community. For example, any historian of religion will tell you that from the third and fourth century all the way until the 19th, God was technically officially defined in all the creeds of Protestantism as without body parts or passions, meaning he is incapable of being moved by our suffering. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a creedal definition. That's official doctrine. You'd be hard pressed to find a Christian today who who believes that. Yeah, you can go to any Christian bookstore and you can find books with titles like "The Most Moved Mover" <laughs> or, or or the right or the God who who cares, uh, the God who risks. Joseph Smith was the first to embrace that principle and make it part of a new theological tradition. Uh, we could go to theosis, which was abandoned by the church very early on in the medieval period. And now you have a, a, a journal like uh, Christianity Today saying it's time that Christians get back to the doctrine of theosis. You, you have predestination and determinism, which are, those are official creeds of virtually the entire Protestant world as it's developing in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And again, you'd find, very, you'd find it very hard to encounter a Christian today who believes that we have no free will and that God has predestined us. But Joseph Smith, again, and the Restoration represent the first creedal embrace of, of those truths. So I, I feel that we the, the distance between Latter-day Saintism and Protestantism is diminishing, but not because we've moved. It's because, I mean, there's even a movement, a, a, a hugely important movement in the Protestant world today called the New Perspective on Paul movement. Hmm. Google it. Go look it up. Okay, okay. You'll find, 
you'll find <laughs> that, that what 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 Protestant theologians and historians of religion are saying is, you know, maybe we got Paul wrong, uh, as Christer Stendhal sometimes pointed to as one of the founders of this movement put it. Paul wasn't preoccupied with sin. He was preoccupied with his weakness. And the whole concept of original sin has come under furious attack hmm. by any number of theologians and scholars. Well, we were there all along. So I, I think that what we are trying to emphasize is that, look, if, if you think about creedal Christianity, it's the Titanic and it's sinking. Hmm. And instead of trying to get closer to it, we need to do a, a better job of, of moving far and vigorously in the opposite direction to celebrate those differences that are increasingly coming to be embraced by a general Christian community. So as you as you look at this and have the practical application of rethinking salvation and how it applies to you, how has this, as you've studied from that 16-year-old boy, young Terrell, to where you are now, which is what, you're 17, 18 years old? You're not much older than... The, 20s now. 20s, 20s, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said so young. Uh how does that how does that uh, make a play that's different in your life? How does that evidence in your actions differently? How how does it motivate you? How do you come to God differently? Do you does it impact you at all, or is it scholarly for you? No, no, it's 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 affected me in very deeply and profoundly personal ways. And here, if you'll indulge me, I'll I'll, I'll answer in a very personal way. Yes, please. I'm an introvert. I'm uh, I'm 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 a hermit like by by inclination. Uh, some would define me as antisocial. I am much happier here, surrounded by my books, working through my own research projects than engaging in social interaction. But I realize as an absolute theological commitment that heaven is a social enterprise, that Zion is the seed of heaven, and that I have to learn how to be less self-preoccupied and to participate in this project of establishing and healing human relationships, being part of a community, learning to, to lose myself in that kind of environment, because that ultimately is what heaven is. Heaven isn't a reward that we attain to. Heaven is simply the extenuation of those relationships that we develop and sanctify here in this world. Hmm. And so salvation for me becomes a project in which I cooperate rather than a reward I'm waiting to earn. And I think that that conditions life in a, in a very real, concrete way. How has that process been for you? Because I, I think of my wife, who is very much introverted to my extrovert, you know, a yin to a yang, a opposites attract, all of those kind of things. Um, but I think of, of, of how she would be, and, and I think that as a principle, she would believe, as you believe, you know, that, that we are a part of, of something bigger and that... Our, part of our calling in life is to help those around us and and and, and sort of do all that but for the introverted uh, among us that that is that is a considerably hard struggle or can be a push how do you how, how has it been for you uh well I still work very much in project <laughs> i'm continually working against the grain oh. but uh i you know i think self-knowledge is three quarters of the battle yeah. and and as i said a, a Latter-day Saint theology that is so conspicuously and emphatically rooted in communal obligation is a powerful incentive. It's a powerful motivator. My wife, I think, has really brilliantly and, 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 and a, in a beautiful way pointed out that the baptismal covenant in Mosiah 18 has a couple of really, really marvelous dimensions to it that we haven't paid much attention to. One is that the wording of the baptismal covenant involves all three members of the Godhead by implication, right? By taking upon us each other's burdens, we emulate the Christ who assumed our burdens. Mm -hmm. By mourning with those who mourn, we emulate the weeping God, the Father. And by comforting those who stand in need and comfort, we replicate the role of the comforter, the third member of the Godhead. But the second dimension of that triad of, of baptismal covenants that is so beautiful is that it puts front and center our communal obligations, that we have to participate with Christ in the work of healing in order to fulfill that covenant that we make to be adopted into his family. Uh, that's really a marvelous feature of the, the LDS conception of what the baptismal sacrament is. Beautifully uh, said and illustrated. I know those aren't yours, your words, they're Mosiah's words, but as you kind of 
unwrap them, unravel them for me. It's it's a a, a new, like you say, all things new, a new way of, of of thinking of all this. I think we should take a break here uh, and let's w- welcome Fiona back and the two of you. We'll talk about everything in between. As the name of the book is All Things New, we've, re- we've rethought sin, we've rethought salvation. So we'll pick up the everything in between coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. LDS Bookstore is where you should go to buy books and other LDS-themed things. Themed things? Well, yeah, you got the Christus Pendant, Christus Nightlight, books, uh, temple pictures. You want cool scripture totes? Do you guys remember a tote back when we used to tote scriptures? You can buy those there as well. Uh, get yourself cool clothes. And I'm not talking like uh, like uh, like your uh, your temple clothes or stuff like that. Just cute clothes. You can find that as well. It's like LDS All Store, but it's LDSBookstore.com. LDSBookstore.com. Brandon, a huge fan and friend. I think maybe even lifer of the Cultural Hall. Uh, he and I are like-minded. He said, you know what? I love the Cultural Hall. I said, I love LDSBookstore.com. He said, did we just become quick best friends? And I said... I think that's almost the movie line, but quite different, actually. He said, what are we even talking about? And I said, I'll tell people to go to LDSBookstore.com. And he said, thank you. So please, don't make a liar out of me. Go to LDSBookstore.com anytime you're ever needing to purchase something that is LDS-themed, church-themed, and they got other stuff, too, LDSBookstore.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always reach out to us. Our email address is contact at theculturalhall.com. If you have questions, maybe we can get Terrell and Fiona to be agreeable to come back another time uh, and we can do just a complete question and answer with them. Or if there are other guests that you recommend that we get in here in the cultural hall, or if you just want to say, man, that uh, that episode was amazing. We love those things, too. The email address is contact at the cultural hall dot com. Now, uh, Terrell and Fiona, in, in the break, you were about to ask me a question. You started into it and I said, no, let's wait. Ask me as part of this. So go ahead and and. Ask me the question you were going to ask, Fiona. Well, I, I, I was wondering how um, how the things we said, if they if they helped you feel better about yourself, if they resonated with you in a way that made you feel less constricted, constrained, happier, uh, closer to God. Cl- anyway. Yeah. Oh, so sort of how this is, is landing. So I'll say a couple of things. One, I'm a little... I like to use the word nerdy because I think it's kind of fun. But so like when you guys give me the background of where all these things come from, I eat that up. And so for me, I just find it fascinating to see where these things have, have been sort of built and come from and, and why we continue to do that. So all that aside, I'm thinking about a much younger Richie who very much felt like uh, at multiple times in my life, the choices that I had made meant that I essentially couldn't have a good life, right? that I had made choices that made me either unworthy to, to, to live to the fullest or that I was being punished or clearly this is happening because of these choices that I had made previously. And it got to a point in my probably my mid to late 20s where I just was like, I don't really, if this is what God is like, I don't really want that. And it w- it, the approach for me was much more of like when people started really saying, you know, what is a heavenly father? A father is a father who loves you. I think of the great relationship that I have with my dad. And that sort of helped me to picture, okay, this is not a God who's like, you're terrible and you'll never amount to anything because you did that. But part of it, too, was, you know, facing church discipline within that time and feeling that very strong arm of church discipline and, and just feeling like, you know, millions of people do this. Uh, come to God for um, comfort, to be um, held, to be inspired, to be elevated. And I'm not feeling this, so there's got to be something else. So for me, hearing you guys talk about this, being able to rethink it, this book um, that you guys have is not, you know, it's not 700 pages full of scholarly, you know, all this kind of stuff. Knowing that what you guys are doing is making this accessible to other people maybe at a younger time than I did, or maybe in a more succinct way so that they don't have to struggle. That's where it's landing with me, as I think, thank goodness for the Givenses for making something like this and laying it out so that people don't have to, you know, to suffer or feel alone or, you know, feel abandoned like I did at some time and like I so, like I know so many other people do. Lovely. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the, um, the story of the rich young man 
um, you know, just talking about worthiness and, you know, God asked him about the commandments. He's kept them all. And and then before, before God, before Christ even asked him the question, we read that looking upon him, he loved him. So either way he went, whether he decided to sell all of his goods or not, mm-hmm. Christ's love was still absolute. So the decision that he made, oh, well, I, I really can't give up all my wealth, would not detract from God's or Christ's life and, and uh, love. And as Christ is God embodied and incarnate, um, we know that's exactly how God would be. And I, I think I think that's important for us to it's, know. It's a marvelous story, and it's I think it's constructed very deliberately in in Mark ten. But but that, that's that not but that's not how we teach it. That that isn't how that you, you I mean you're right you're right and it's a beautiful story but that isn't how when I sit in Sunday school we're not going yeah you know just Christ just loved him no matter what he chose we go oh if he could have just given up everything he would have been in God's favor yeah. I mean that very lesson I can remember sitting through well I I sometimes think that the Lord was trying to push us in a different direction as far back as the writing of the book of Job. So let us shift gears here to talk a little bit about obedience and its relationship to to worthiness and punishment. In the book of Job, you know, we get, uh, to my mind, one of the most vivid depictions of one of the the more common kinds of trials we undergo in this world, which is cognitive dissonance, Mm -hmm. right? It's just that incapacity to make sense of, of life, rather like Adam and Eve in the garden. And Job knows he's been good. He knows he's been righteous. He knows he's a just man. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? And finally, the revelation comes about chapter 35 toward the end of Job when this wandering prophet Elihu shows up and he asks a question that I think shakes the foundations of our understanding of covenant relationships. Elihu says, if thou sinnest, what doest thou against God? I mean, just think about that. Then he he says, and if thou be righteous, what, what givest thou to God? How does it how does it affect how does it affect God? I mean, it's it's, it's an incredible question because we always presumed that he's like the sovereign. If we disobey him, he's offended. Mm-hmm. If we obey him, he's grateful. And you, know, you say, no, he doesn't need your obedience. And he could completely disregard as irrelevant in the scheme of the cosmos your disobedience. Does God care if you if you obey? Yes, because he chooses to care. And suddenly Obedience becomes not an obligation of a subject to his sovereign, but a recognition of a paternal father who is trying to counsel and teach us for our own best interests. And that that just changes everything. Yeah. Instead of looking at these commandments as challenges or tests, we look at them instead as loving counsel that is trying to get us to where our father is. So that's, I think, one example of where we need to reorient our understanding of obedience and take off some of the harsh negative edge that it has for almost all Latter-day Saints. So that's one part of everything in between. What else you got, Fiona? What else is everything in between? Oh, let's see. Hang on. Let me get the book out. It's been a while since I've read it. (laughs) No, it's really true. It's like you write it. Talk about judgment. And then, oh, yeah. Yeah, you write it, and then there's this long lapse between that and the printing. And I don't know about Terrell, but I completely forget about it. <laughs> now, I, I would actually like to talk about judgment. Terrell and I were giving a fireside. It was um, at a BYU ward uh, of young people. And the bishop was very concerned because most of these young people had served missions and they were coming back completely broken, feeling ashamed, and they weren't living up to all of the all of the requirements that were demanded of them. And so we introduced Julian of Norwich because she's always good. Um, she's, you know, she says that wrath and love be two contraries. God can't be wrathful and he can't love. She says that, you know, our, essentially she repeats Moses 139. This is their work in their glory. So, you know, everybody's starting to breathe a little easier. <laughs> and then um, one young man at the back puts up his hand and he asks, what about judgment? And so we asked him, how do you feel when you hear that word judgment? He said, I I am afraid. I feel fear. And so we responded by saying that if you feel fear, that is not God speaking. God never coerces. He never forces. He would never use fear 
to try and get you to behave well or to get up earlier in the morning, whatever it is. And, and then we thought of Elder Uchtdorf and the way Elder Uchtdorf redefined judgment to be a place of healing, to be a place where all things are made right, to be a place where you can feel for the first time since you left their presence, absolute unmitigated love, which in and of itself is healing. And, and I think that's something that we as LDS really do have to bring to the table yeah. uh, with all of the other things um, to help Christians, in fact, to help the entire world recognize that their worth is not being held in balance. God is not testing to see whether they are worthy or not to enter his presence. They always have been. I, yeah, I think what we have missed the boat on is 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 using the resource that we have of an eternal perspective of the plan mm -hmm. in light of which judgment has to have a very, very different meaning. And it's actually meaning that Paul alludes to and that I think is pretty clear in the Book of Mormon as well. And Elder Oaks has spoken to this meaning of judgment, which is it's a prelude to further progress. It's not the final word. One example of, of a dimension to judgment we never think about is when we are told in the Book of Mormon that at the day of judgment, the righteous shall have a knowledge of their enjoyment. Hmm. Now, I take that to mean that most of us labor under feelings of intense inadequacy, unworthiness. And I think what we're being told is, no, in, in that moment when we clearly can see ourselves, we'll recognize, you know, most of us did a pretty good job with what we were given. And we have a, a time of introspection, of evaluation, of self-recognition that is called judgment that prepares us for further development and education and experience in the eternities to come. I, you know, we, we talk about eternal progress, but judgment in the context of eternal progress can't be the final exam. Um, you know, I have students say to me, they'll say, well, final judgment means the last one. And I say, is that final exam? You just took the last exam you'll ever take in your life? <laughs> it marks the end of a phase. And they're like, I hope so. I thought this was the end of the class. <laughs> are you giving me more? What are we doing well, maybe here? Maybe one of them will be. <laughs> but, but, um, but knowing and hearing it that way, like, uh, I just, I don't know if you guys can see it. Like, it just feels lighter. It's, it feels more hopeful. It feels doable. In, in a time where life, I think, in general, but certainly 2020 has been a time where everything has seemed harder, more challenging, yeah, yeah. more, you know, anything like that. The idea of, of judgment, of even just finding hope has been harder for, I would, I would dare say all people, but I'll go with most people. And to know that, like we know from Moses 1, 39, that, you know, that this is their work and their glory. The glory part of that, I don't think we celebrate near enough. I mean, they, they just, they just love us. And I, and, and that's, that's the thing that I've taken away from all of this is that it, that it, it is far more loving than I think we really, we really recognize that no, we really I think, speak I think of. You're absolute, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think judgment will be oh my goodness, look what you were able to accomplish with what little you had. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you are amazing. You, you had so much coming at you. You know, you had a, a dreadful childhood, you know, this, that, and the other. And look what you were able to do in spite of all that. I, I really do think that's, that's judgment. Well done. You did everything you could given the circumstances you were in. You know, part of what makes this book a little bit different um, from most devotional books is that we we, we have to give a kind of historical accounting of how we got to where we are. You have to know your past in order to change the future. And this is nowhere more evident than in terms of the concept of repentance. Mm -hmm. it, it, it helps to know how we got to the negative connotations of repentance that we find today if you realize that for 1,500 years, well, yeah, yeah, for as long as the church was around until the Reformation, the word metanoeo in Greek was translated as do penance. I mean, this is a phenomenal fact, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where the Catholic Church got the sacrament of penance. It was from repent, translated as do penance. So that was taken as an imperative. You got to find a way to do penance. But think about what that means to do penance. To do penance means to personally atone, to pay a penalty, to experience a retributive justice until you can clear the slate. When an actual and, and so we still have that connotation, right? Sure. We have to repent 
of our sins. We have to pay a debt. When in actual fact, right, metanoeo, as, as most of us know, but it doesn't seem to register, means change your orientation. That's what John the Baptist is preaching. That's what Christ was preaching. Change your heart, change your attitude, change your orientation. That's the, that's the whole project of life, is to learn to love the things that God loves, to place our affections in harmony with his. What a beautiful way to think about repentance. Mm -hmm. Instead of emphasizing the past and paying this debt for the past, no, we're looking toward the forward, to the future, and, and trying to daily reshape our hearts to be more in, in, in tune with God's. But how will I feel that hopeless sorrow if I'm just reorienting? I'm just teasing you, of course. But, you know, that that part of repentance where it's like, feel the weight of the horrible things that you have. And and sometimes, you know, we can't see ourselves past that. Right. We just feel that so much well, this we, we can't turn away from. I think it makes yeah, we, we make about, it harder. We talk about this a little bit in saying that we could do we could we could benefit greatly if we would remember this crucial distinction between guilt and remorse. Mm -hmm. Guilt is self-centered. Guilt mm -hmm. is all about, oh me, oh woe is me, what have I done and what am I gonna suffer? Remorse is other directed. And that's what the Lord wants us to feel. It's, oh my goodness, how have my actions hurt that person? How mm -hmm. can I help heal that individual that my words and choices have harmed? That's the godly sorrow that we're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. Not self-recrimination, but empathy for, for those in the line of fire. I love it. The book is called All Things New. It's Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. I'm a little upset that you guys didn't write me a book in, or not a, write me a book, write me a note in the book that you sent me. That's okay. You're forgiven. I'll bring it with me when I uh, see you guys in person. Yes. Send it back. That's shocking <laughs> that we didn't yeah. do that. There are what I believe to be your guys' signatures, but no like, oh, Richie, we miss you so much. We can't wait till we get to okay. have, well, it has a, a higher have resale a value if it doesn't have a personal <laughs> note. Oh, good. Well, never mind then. Good. Thank you. Thank you for Just thinking. the signature. Uh, there are those three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I don't know if you guys remember that we did this, but we did it before, so we'll do it again. Um, the first question is, and you can go in whichever order between the two of you, is uh, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Oh, we have the best callings in the church. Shh, don't say that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Terrell is a gospel doctrine teacher. It, generally, one doesn't get callings, one covets, but he's got it. And then I am um, a Relief Society teacher. Wow. So, yeah, are we, yeah, really happy callings. Really happy with us. Yeah. Do you guys stream that church online? Because I would love to sit into that Sunday school or that uh, gospel doctrine. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. You need to do that. Yeah. Send me a personal request. I'll see if I can sneak yeah. you in. <laughs> okay, deal. Uh, the second question is, if you could pick a calling, and you sort of maybe answered this, but if you pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, when Terrell was um, made bishop, he called me to be the gospel doctrine teacher. And all my friends told me that, I, the reason why I was gospel doctrine teacher was because I slept with the bishop. <laughs> so I hope I don't have to do that again. But that that is really, I mean, and, you know, that was really a fabulous calling. Uh, so perhaps, I mean, I love what I'm doing now, but but that's wonderful. But I don't mind if Terrell's teaching because he's really quite stupendous. Yeah, I can't improve upon that calling. So I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> all right. All right. And then the final question, ask you to interpret however you would like. But what is your favorite part of your faith? Hmm. Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. What is the favorite? Um, that, oh, yeah, the favorite part of my faith is um, the conviction that we are here to build Zion, a global Zion, um, because we're all children of our heavenly parents. And to be quite honest, I don't see any room for apocalypse. Apocalypse is a sign of failure. And I have great hope in ourselves and in the Godhead that we will together as a global community with the Godhead create Zion so that Christ will come and we will fall upon their necks and they will fall upon ours and Christ shall make this his home. If I had to choose one word or concept, I think the closest I could do would be to say the boundlessness mm. of the vision that Joseph Smith transmitted. Um, I, I tend to be ADD. Uh, I tend to um, be, I just have a kind of voracious curiosity and appetite 
And the prospect of this gospel that promises us infinite realms in which to develop and be educated and learn and develop, it's, it's a perpetually exciting prospect uh, to me, and it keeps me animated about my discipleship. Thank you so much for reaching out to me, for being willing to talk about this book. Uh, there is a link of how you can purchase this book in the show notes for this episode. And uh, want to let you guys know that we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 